All right, ready for the word? All right, I hope you have, in fact, you know, asking that question, I hope you have uh, some sense of the privilege it is as we get together right now to look at the word of God, the privilege it is to, to even have it in your hands. And if you have a, a print and bound version like I have in my hands right now, or you have um, it on your phone or, or tablet, uh, you have a Bible app and you're tracking with the scriptures that way, no matter how you have it, I hope you're uh, grateful for it and understand the privilege it is to have the Bible and to have it so accessible, so readily available uh, to us. And to make the point of how thankful we should be for the Bible, just like a couple of weeks ago, if, uh, if we're connected on Facebook, you, you may have noticed on my page that I, I uh, posted, uh, this was a repost, somebody else had put it up, but a reminder that on that day a couple of weeks ago, uh, William Tyndale, maybe that name is familiar to you and maybe not, but William Tyndale uh, in 1536 was uh, strangled and then burned at the stake for translating the scriptures into English. Correct, into English. And prior to 1536, the word of God was not available in the language of the people in England. It was not available in English. And, and, and Tyndale made it available to all. Now, King Henry VIII, you may know that name from history. Henry VIII was the king at the time, and he was the one who saw to the execution of Tyndale. And Tyndale's final words, according to John Fox, the historian, John Fox said that Tyndale's final words were were this, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Tyndale's final words before he was strangled was a prayer for the king of England for his eyes to be opened to the scriptures. And God did answer that prayer. About 20 years later, the successor to King Henry VIII was Elizabeth I, who had a long and glorious reign. And under Elizabeth I, England became a Protestant country with the word of God readily available, widely available, accessible to the people in their own language. Now, her successor was James I, who in the early part of the 1600s undertook for the translation of the scriptures into what we know as the King James Version. And what is, um, uh, without a doubt, the most influential translation of the scripture in human history. Now, there's a link in the notes to uh, a little bit more about William Tyndale, but I I tell you all of that because I love history and you're stuck with me as your pastor. So I get to put stuff like that in, Uh, but also, um, also because our appreciation for the word of God should never be taken for granted. The fact that you have an English translation in front of you in whatever form you have it is there because William Tyndale was willing to give his life for the translation of the scriptures into our language. We should never take that for granted. We should never take it for granted that God has revealed his will and his ways to us. It's no small thing. We should never take it for granted that God has revealed himself to us. That is a gift to us beyond measure. And so it's a It's a huge privilege for us to be here, to be hearing God's word, to have it in front of us as we do. And as we look at, that all relates to Revelation 10 and what we're going to look at today. Because Revelation 10 and the first part of Revelation 11 are a a pause in the action. It's an interlude in the the midst of all of these apocalyptic visions that John is is receiving about the end times. It's, It's a pause before that seventh trumpet is sounding. And the vision that John sees in this moment takes us back 
to the preciousness of God's word and the centrality of the gospel in our lives. And as we're brought face to face with the word of God, believer, listen, as we're brought face to face with the word of God, there's some implications for us. And it's those implications that we're gonna see in the text as we work through the message today. And so Revelation chapter 10, I'll read these 11 verses and then we'll get uh, right to uh, the material. This is the apostle John uh, uh, continuing to write. He says this, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be revealed, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Well, here's what we're going to look at when I'm, when I'm brought face to face with the word of God. The first implication for me as a believer is this, I must submit to its authority. Now, I apologize for the swear words there. I really do have quite a potty mouth. And, and when you look at some of these swear words like submit and authority, um, the language is a little harsh. I understand in our culture today, these are swear words. These are things people don't want to talk about. They're not popular concepts in our culture. But what we see in this description of this strong angel in verse 1 is, is, is pointing to the authority that is resident in God himself. We have this imposing description of another mighty angel. We had seen a previous mighty angel back in chapter five, verse two. This apparently is another one and is distinct from all the other angels. And you get that when you see the description. John says that this mighty angel was coming down from heaven. So clearly now John, who has been up in heaven viewing all of the vision of eternity, somehow now has been transported back down to earth so that his perspective is that of someone on earth. And he sees the angel coming down, the mighty angel coming down. And notice a description in verse one, wrapped in a cloud, rainbow over his head, face like the sun, legs like pillars of fire. This is an awesome, incredible image that John is depicting for us. 
Now, this is not God. We know it's a mighty angel. It's not God. But sufficiently awesome for us to recognize that this mighty angel wasn't even like other angels, but was very close to the throne of God. One of God's mighty angels, one of God's closest angels, an angel bestowed with some awesomeness of his own, a reflection of the awesomeness and authority of God. This sufficiently awesome description of this mighty angel makes the point that this particular angel comes with divine authority to speak on behalf of God. And indeed, he's charged with a very specific and critical message and mission. Verse 2, he has this little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot. This is the angel. He set his right foot on the seat, his left foot on the land. Again, this is such an imposing scene from John, who's now been transported to the earth to look up and see this. To see how awesome, how imposing this is. The three realms of God mentioned at least twice in this chapter speak to everything God has created. This angel has one foot on the land that God created, one foot on the sea that God created, and stands out into the sky, the heavens that God created. The angel towers over John, towers over all of humanity. And what we're meant to see in this is God's absolute sovereignty over all things. He alone has the right to say what he's going to say. He, is, he alone has the right to do what he is going to do through this angel and his other agents. So this angel, verse 3, calls out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. You'd expect that. But when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. What are the seven thunders? John just throws it in here as if we're supposed to know what the seven thunders are. As if he's already talked about the seven thunders in some other part of the book. We're in chapter 10. We've never heard of the seven thunders before. But now they're sounding. There's no obvious reference in the near context. We know seven is a number as we've seen uh, previously often refers to the perfect work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, four times up until this point in chapters one, three, four, and five, we see a reference to the seven spirits of God. We said in each of those cases, the seven spirits of God is just talking about the perfect spirit of God or the Holy Spirit of God. And so what we have pictured in the seven spirits of God is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And, and the best understanding almost certainly we can have of the seven thunders is that this is the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking as the angel, the mighty angel is himself speaking. All of this reinforcing the divine authority behind the angel's message. And if you're taking notes and you want to track down a little bit more about the effect of God's voice alone, just write down this reference, Psalm 29, uh, verses 3 to 9, and you see a beautiful poetic picture there of the thundering voice of God. Now, with that picture in your mind, this mighty angel and the, the authority of God and how imposing this is, let me ask you whether or not that's how you see the Bible when you open it. Do you see it coming to you with that 
kind of imposing authority in your life. I mean, if you're part of this church family, you've, you've said something about what you believe. We have, a, we have a doctrinal statement or a statement of faith on our website that, a, that, that lays out the things that we believe as a church. Presumably, if you've become a member or you become part of this church, you're saying, I believe these things too. That's why I'm part of this church. And in our doctrinal statement with respect to the word of God, among all the other things that we say there, this is, the, this, is, this is one statement, that the scriptures are the final and sufficient authority for all of life. The Bible is the final and sufficient authority for all of life. L'autorité finale est suffisante pour tous les aspects de notre vie. La autoritat finale est suffisante para toda la vida. How'd I do? Those are the only three languages I have. So don't get excited about your language possibly coming out. But we have that statement, the final and sufficient authority for all of life. And we say that we believe that statement. We give a nod to it, but is it informing all aspects of our lives? Is it true that we're making decisions about how we spend our time with that view of God's authority in our lives? Is it true that we're, we're, we have that picture of God's authority as we're deciding how to spend our money? Not just, by the way, not just the money you may have given in an offering this week, but the money you kept for yourself is still under the authority of God. How you prioritize your life under the authority of God, how you determine what you value. Will you, will you in fact, let God, if you're a single person, will you let God determine who you're gonna marry? Will you let God determine what you do for a living and where you do it? Will you let God determine all aspects of your life? Think about that. Think about, think about the experience that John is having, being given this incredible image of the authority of God as this message is being delivered. Think about it. If you had the experience John had as you were trying to make some life decision about who to marry or where to live or what education to pursue, was some priority that's going on in your life. If you had the same vision of a mighty angel reinforcing the authority of God, that as you're considering this decision, you're walking down by the waterfront and a mighty angel appears with one foot in Kempenfelt Bay and one foot on Highway 400, whose voice is coming out like thunder. As you're asking God walking along the bay about how you should make this decision, what value you should pursue. Do you think that the imposing image of that mighty angel might change your mind? Might steer you toward a different decision? Would you still choose what you chose? 
Or would you submit to his authority? But here's the thing. God doesn't need to manifest himself in that way for you to make that decision because he's already given you his word. And it is authoritative. And we should submit to it in all matters of life. It is the final and sufficient authority for every aspect of my life. So this is the challenge that we're facing. And, and, and back to this little detail, you'll see how this plays out now. Back to this little detail in verse two that we kind of just skipped over. This mighty angel has this little scroll in his hand. It was open in his hand. And, and, and we should ask the question, what's on the little scroll? What's the content of the little scroll? And there's some similarities here with Ezekiel chapter two. Again, if you're taking notes, just jot down Ezekiel two, verse nine. And, and in that verse, that was, the, that was Ezekiel's call and commission to be a prophet, to share the word, to declare the word to the people. And we see here in Revelation 10 that this is connected to John's commission and calling. And it serves as a reminder to each of us, every single one of us as Christians, this isn't just for pastors and preachers and prophets, but for the people of God, every one of us. But our own calling, our own ministry and, and mission, and we're going to talk more about that toward the end, but sufficient to say at this point that our commission by God, the commission given to us by God, is also rooted in authority. <clears throat> Jesus said this, and this is in the passage we call the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he commissioned them. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. The command in that is to make disciples. The, well, part of the methodology for making disciples is that we have to go. To go and find them, go to them. Go to all nations to do this. But it's all rooted our commission, what we're supposed to be doing as Christians in this world, it's rooted in the authority of Jesus Christ. And as I'm making all of these other life choices, the big overarching question is this one. Am I, am I orienting everything in my life around the mission of the gospel that he's entrusted to me and to each of you? All right, that's the first point. That's a pretty good start, right? Ready for a second one? Okay, here we go. When I'm brought face to face with the word of God, I must also revel in its mystery. I love this. Um, revel in, his, in, in its mystery. Uh, when we see the word mystery in the Bible, it's used fairly frequently. It's referring to something that is, um, would be currently concealed by God, but, but, of, but eventually revealed. And Paul talks about uh, the mystery of Christ or the mystery of the gospel in several of his letters, including Ephesians 3, 4. And these are things that we didn't know before that have been or are in the process of being revealed. And so if you take this from the perspective of the Old Testament, there was a lot of mystery for believers in the Old Testament because they knew there was going to be a redemption plan. They knew that God had something that he was working out. They knew they were waiting for a, a Messiah, but they didn't know what the nature of all of that was going to be. And a good portion of the mystery of the gospel was then revealed in Jesus Christ. And we found out 
what he was like and the kind of life he lived and the fact that he would eventually have to be crucified, buried, and resurrected from the dead. And so all of that mystery, the Old Testament saints, they didn't know any of that. A big part of the mystery was then revealed to us. The main part of the mystery was revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Now notice verse four, when the seven thunders had sounded, that's the voice of the Holy Spirit, when the, when, the, when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. John, John he's thinking, I got to do the thing I was told to do, something really cool. And the seven thunders just said something that was completely awesome. And he gets his notebook out and he's ready to make some notes. But he, he says, he writes this, but he says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. I've let you hear it but you can't reveal anything that the Holy Spirit just said. Now, this is separate and distinct from the content of the little scroll, which is open and is being revealed. We're talking about what the seven thunders had said. So there was something there that needed to remain a mystery, at least for the time, something that had to remain unrevealed for God's own reasons. He does that. Fanning said this, one of the commentators I'm using, he said this, it is an overt reminder. This, this point right here is an overt reminder that God's counsel has depths that humans will never see or understand. And, and I, you know, having said that, I, I need to ask the question, like, are you okay with that? Are you okay with the fact that God's counsel has depths that we as humans will never see or understand? Are you okay with that? that some things remain unrevealed, that some things about God remain absolutely mysterious. I mean, let me ask this question, because if you're still sitting there going, like, I'd rather know everything about God. The problem with that, of course, would be that, I mean, would you even want to worship and serve a God that you could fully explain? What kind of God would that be if you could fit into your little brain? Our God is, is, is described by theologians as being transcendent. And, and the, the big word simply means other. He's, he's other. He's different. How could we possibly think that we could understand him? I'm actually pretty great with that. I, yes, I'm still going to take his word and I'm going to read it and I'm going to study it and I'm going to read other authors and I'm going to listen to other teachers and preachers and I'm going to try to understand everything I can possibly understand about God. I'm going to spend an entire lifetime trying to understand who my God is. But I don't for a moment think that I'm going to be able to plumb the depths or even come close to plumbing the depths of who God actually is in an entire lifetime of pursuing him. I don't know if you've been following um, uh, the stuff related to the James Webb telescope. How many people know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the James Webb telescope? Raise your hands for a second, please, because I'm like, I'm so disappointed that some of you don't know what that is. Um, and, and I would just ask you to go and, and look it up because the, the work that's being done by NASA and this telescope is unbelievable. The telescope is actually sitting um, outside of the moon's orbit. So it was launched out. It took several months to get to its place. It's 1.6 million kilometers away from Earth. It sits in an orbit with us and with the sun that keeps it Uh, keeps the earth between it and the sun. And so the whole concept behind this is if you can get away from all the light pollution and all the atmosphere of earth with a telescope, 
And, and in fact, if you can block out the sun's light, that you're going to be able to see deeper into space. And so that's what James Webb has been doing and, and sending back these really unbelievable images, some of which we, we can see uh, coming up right now. And we're looking deep. These are right off the James Webb um, uh, website. And, and we're seeing things we've never seen before with greater clarity and greater detail. Uh, including one of the shots coming up in a moment called um, the Pillars of Creation. And the more I look at this, the more, there it is right there, that's the Pillars of Creation. And it's just, it's mind-boggling images that we're seeing from this uh, telescope. And the more I look into it, the, the more I see these pictures, the more my faith in God, my confidence in God is increasing. Because I'm looking deeper and deeper into the mystery of who he is and how he made all of this. Even, even as these images overwhelm all of my senses, overwhelm my ability to understand what I'm actually looking at. Because what's, what's being revealed to me, this is, the, this is the irony or the paradox of it. What's being revealed to me is actually increasing the mystery of who God is. And I imagine John as he's seeing these images of eternity and these, these apocalyptic pictures that he's been giving, being given, that John is similarly overwhelmed with the mystery of it all. As anyways, he goes on, verse five, and he says, the angel raised his right hand to heaven, presumably the scroll then is in his left hand, verse six, and, and swore by him, this is how you know that this is an angel and not God himself. He swore by him who lives forever and ever, He's swearing by God, and, and he, he gives God's cred here, who created heaven and what is in it, and earth and what's in it, and see what's in it. He's made everything. He filled everything that he made. And then here's the main message of this, this little scroll. The, the, the main point of this interlude is to tell us something before we get to the seventh trumpet. Notice here in verse 6. There would be no more delay. There's not going to be any more delay. God's, God's patience has come to an end. Now, up until this point in, in the prophecies, what we've seen is, is God being super patient. And yes, there's been judgment. Yes, some people have died. Yes, some horrible things have happened. But the, but the full world, the, the, the global catastrophe has not yet happened. And God's intention with afflicting people but not killing them or, or, or judging only a portion of the population is that the other portion would see that and repent. That's been God's heart all the way through this is to give people time to come to a realization of the truth and to repent. But now there will be no more delay. God's patience has come to an end. Judgment is now imminent. Justice is going to flow down to vindicate his people. And really, why should God wait any longer? God has given ample time for people to hear the gospel and to repent. God has provided enough warnings, enough prophets, enough preachers, enough people who have pointed to all the signs Enough warnings for the entire world to know, by that point for sure, the very real effects of God's judgment. 
by the time, verse 7, the trumpet call by the seventh angel. And it's at this point, notice what it says, the latter part of verse 7 here. It's at that point, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. Just as he announced to his servants by the prophets. In other words, by this time that John is seeing, still future for us, God's been saying this for thousands of years through his prophets and his preachers and through the printed word of God. And if people haven't repented by now, they never will. And that's the tragic reality of the mystery that is unfolding before us. Look at this next. From my perspective, I must also internalize its message, internalize the message of the word of God. And what happens here is a bit bizarre. John says in verse eight, the voice from heaven said, go take the scroll in the hand of the angel. He did that, verse nine. He went to the angel, told him to give him the little scroll. And the angel said to John, uh, take and eat it, eat it. That's weird. There's weird stuff in the Bible. That's weird. Now, I already said there was parallels to Ezekiel. In fact, Ezekiel was told to eat a scroll, and so is Jeremiah. So there, this, this isn't brand new what's happening here. But what God really wanted from his prophets was, would, would be that they would internalize the message. Ezekiel was, was told, this is Ezekiel 3, 1 to 3, eat this scroll, go and speak to the house of Israel. So Ezekiel said, I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat and then I ate it. God wanted his prophets to internalize the message that he had given them to proclaim. He didn't want his prophets simply to be performing a task, to do a job. It's, a, it's an absolute tragic and horrible thing for any church to have a pastor who just looks at what he does as a job. The first thing, what you should want more than anything else is for me to be first transformed by the message that I'm proclaiming. That I would internalize these messages before I ever deliver them. And that's what God wants from John. It's what he wanted from Ezekiel. He wants more than them just accomplishing a task. A good example of a prophet who was just accomplishing a task, task was Jonah. Jonah never believed the thing that he was preaching. Jonah never had any desire whatsoever that the Ninevites would believe the message he was bringing and they would be converted. But that was God's heart that they would repent. And the book of Jonah ends, sadly, with the prophet having a pity party because God had saved the Ninevites. God wants his prophets to believe the word and to deliver it. That the first one to be transformed by the word would be the prophet delivering it. As one commentator suggested, this was to be the complete assimilation of the prophetic message into their lives. I mentioned too that this was true for Jeremiah and this is what he prayed. And I love this verse, Jeremiah 15, 16, it's up on the screen. Your words were found, Jeremiah said. Your words were found and I ate them and your word became to me a joy and the delight of my heart for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Now listen, 
that's not just the prayer of a prophet or of a pastor or of a preacher. It's the prayer of every person who loves and serves Jesus Christ and who believes his word. That every one of us who's a Christian should be saying the same thing as we read the word of God. Your words, God, I, I found them, I ate them. They became a joy to me. They're the delight of my heart. I'm called by your name. And then to take it from there onto the mission that we have been entrusted with. Each of us needs to see this prayer as our own personal approach to the word of God. It's a meal that we're stepping up to have. I mean, you like food, right? How many people here like food? Just raise your hand. Some of you are lying <laughs> because you didn't raise your hands. Everyone loves food. Friday night, Cheryl made enchiladas. They were really good. I had to share them with Joel and Megan because they came over, but they were so, Megan's was vegetarian, so that wasn't any loss. But anyways, they're so good. Yesterday, had some people, we ordered Osmos, so we got like the lamb on the rocks. The rocks are rice, so lamb with tzatziki sauce on it and on a bed of rice and then some chicken with with, with, with grilled veggies under it and, and before we left for church today, won't tell anybody because we don't have enough, but Cheryl put, pulled pork into the crock pot. We're having pulled pork tonight. We don't have enough for all of you. <laughs> I like food. I like to, I like to, eat food. I like, I like to, to taste it, to chew it, to savor it, to enjoy it. I like the way it, it feels when, it, like when, it's, when I'm eating it, when it's going in and it's, it's supplying nutrients, at least that's what I tell myself, <laughs> and strengthening me and, and supplying all that I need. Yet, I have this meal right in front of me every day, better than enchiladas, better than lamb on the rocks, better than pulled pork. It's the, it's the best meal you're ever, gonna, you're ever gonna sit down to eat. It has the most flavor and the most nutrients. It'll satisfy you the, the, better than any meal you've ever had. Its nutrients will supply all that you ever need. And like any great meal, you want to tell others about it. I want to tell you about how great Cheryl's enchiladas were on Friday night. They were so good. I want to tell you about that. Or when you, when you come across some restaurant that you really like, you go like, what you say? It's a new restaurant. The food is so good there. And I, I become like when Beertown opened, I became an evangelist for Beertown. <laughs> I told everybody about Beertown. I don't even drink beer. I just go there for the food. Their coffee's amazing at Beertown. But I want to tell you about it. I don't do this, but some of you do. When you have a good meal, what do you do? You take a picture of it and you post it on Instagram. 
You love the food so much. You love the presentation and, the, and how it looks. And you want to tell people about how awesome the food is. We have to be that way with the word of God. We need to internalize it and savor it and enjoy it so much and, 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 and tell everyone else about it. You can't believe the way this food is changing my life. I just want to tell you about it. So internalize its message. Wherever you're at with the word of God right now, maybe you're not reading it at all. You need to start. I'm not talking about like, it's, it's foolish just to say, you know what? Every Sunday I go for one really good meal. Sunday morning, I get one really good meal. does me for the whole week. That's silly. You want to keep going back. You want to keep getting more. You want to eat more. You want to digest and enjoy more. So if you're not reading the Bible at all, start reading the Bible. Get a version that, that is best for you to be using. Uh, get, get, a, get an app or buy a print version and start reading the Bible. Get on a reading plan, get a, get a buddy, get a Bible buddy and start reading the Bible together and just checking in with one. Did you read the passage today? Changed my life. God's speaking right into a situation we're going through right now. Wherever you're at, just take one step up, one notch. If you're reading the Bible every day, start reading it twice a day. Like I'm just, study the Bible, read the Bible, internalize the Bible, let it change your life. Now, as you do that, you and I are going to need to anticipate its varied effects. Because the word of God doesn't strike everybody in exactly the same way. And the angel tells John in, in the latter part of verse 9 here, he says, I will make your stomach bitter. He's, you're going to eat it now, but your stomach's going to be bitter. In your mouth, it's going to be so sweet, sweet like honey. John says that's exactly how it played out. Verse 10, it's as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Now, why? And because as God reveals the events of the last days, some are finding mercy and entering into the joy of their salvation. And others are falling under the justice of God and facing eternal separation from his goodness and grace. Revelation in, in indeed all of scripture Revelation is, is a bittersweet message containing both hope and condemnation. And that's why it's bittersweet. So that, that just understanding that the gospel is bittersweet, that's part of what makes our mission in the world a hard one because we're the face of the gospel to people. And, and for some people that's hope and for other people it's condemnation. From our perspective, it's so wonderful to be saved and to have not only the promise of eternal life, but we have this abundant life here and now. It's so wonderful to be saved and have the benefits of Jesus Christ in our lives. And yet it's so hard to see people we know and love reject him and to know what their eternal destiny is because they have. It's bittersweet. The gospel is bittersweet. And God wants us to know that he knows that. He knows that. George Eldon Ladd said this, the full counsel of God contains a word of judgment as well as mercy. And the messenger of the gospel, not just pastors, preachers, and prophets, but the people of God, all of us, the messenger of the gospel must be faithful to both aspects of his message. 
But the man who knows the love of God and the compassion of Christ can never take delight in preaching the wrath of God or find satisfaction of spirit in proclaiming divine judgment. He must always do, do this with a broken heart, with a bitter spirit, following the example of his Lord who wept over those upon whom God's judgment was to fall. That's so well said. Gospel's bittersweet. The Apostle Paul put it this way in his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians. He said, for we are, speaking to Christians, he says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. It was like, it's a hard thing, Paul says. And so he throws in the question, who's sufficient for these things? Who could possibly cope with the bittersweet nature of the gospel? It says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. We're not just people who are throwing it out there saying that the gospel is all, um, you know, roses and, 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 and bunnies and, and all the happy stuff. But as men of sincerity is commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We give the full counsel. Though it's bittersweet, we carry on with what God has given us to do, to proclaim Jesus Christ to this world, to proclaim his gospel. And that's the last part of this. Notice this finally. When I'm brought face to face with the word of God, I anticipate its varied effects and carry it with me on mission for Christ. The angel tells John, uh, verse 11, he said, you, you must again prophesy. You, you have to, once again, I'm going to get you to preach this gospel. There's more that has to be said. We're not done here. You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And again, we have been charged to make disciples of all nations. This is, this is global. There's a universal nature, nature to all of these prophecies. And just as John takes up his renewed mission, we're to take up our mission. We're to renew our own mission in this world. And so as we have been studying Revelation, and this is the 16th message that we've seen in Revelation, we're again, approximately halfway through. We're not approaching our study of Revelation with this, with this need to know all the details of the, of the various prophecies. We're not studying it in that way, but with a desire to understand and then communicate the actual message that Revelation is communicating to all of us in this book. First of all, an encouragement to believers. As believers read this book, it's an encouragement to persevere, uh, to continue on in the face of all the trials and difficulties that are ahead of us. You can make it through, Christian. Why? Because God is sovereign and God wins. That's the message of Revelation. But secondly, that's the message of Revelation for believers. But for unbelievers, unbelievers, it is a call to repent. To take note of the judgments are, that are coming, of the, of the, of the sovereignty of God and of, of the fact that his plan is going to play out in this way. Therefore, repent and turn your life over to him. That's the message of Revelation. And Christian, that is our mission 
carry the gospel with us and tell others about Jesus Christ, to tell them about his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his return. Jesus, in fact, said to us, to this very point, as if he was thinking about us studying Revelation on this day. He said this to his disciples just prior to his ascension. Acts chapter 1, 7 and 8, he said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That part is still a mystery. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Every one of us as believers on mission for Jesus Christ. That's what happens when you come face to face with the word of God. And if it's not happening in your life, if you're not coming face to face with the word of God on a regular basis, make it happen. Get God's word open and then watch it transform you, transform your message, and through your mission in this world, transform people all around you for his glory. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, um, again, as we so often pray, there's just such gratitude in our hearts for the fact that you have spoken to us. You have made your word known to us. You have revealed so much of the mystery. And so, Father, it's such a privilege for us to have the word in our hands, to know that there were men and women who gave their lives to ensure that we would have the word of God today in our own language accessible to us. And so, God, thank you for that. And we pray earnestly, God, that it would continue to transform our lives. I, I pray that there would be commitments made right across this room and, and on the live stream and on demand this week that people would be making decisions about their approach to your word. And God, I pray that you would use that to continue to transform us, but also, Father, to, to allow us the honor of seeing many others who do not yet know you also be transformed by the word of God. So thank you, God, for hearing this prayer and, and for blessing us with your presence today. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ.